Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of History Matters. I'm Patrick Wyman, joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Keith Plymers. And we're joined today by a fantastic guest. He's an economist, and he's a fellow and research director at the Roosevelt Institute, where he works on market power and inequality. Marshall Steinbaum, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, really glad to have you on. I've been looking forward to this a lot, too. We had a couple of big questions for you in response to some pieces you've written, but we were going to talk today about ideology in history really broadly. So we wanted to start off by thinking about what ideology is. You've written in a couple of different places that ideology is a real thing that can exert causal force on how history works. So, for example, you noted that ideology is something that really does shape whether or not social democracy will come to rise or not. So I'm wondering, just starting very broadly, if you could kind of say what ideology is to you and how does it cause history to move? The way I think of ideology is as a theory of how the world works and how it's how it should work. So it has those two elements, one positive, one normative. Um, and in the book chapter, Inequality and the Rise of Social Democracy, an Ideological History, the attempt there, the, the, the thesis there is that uh, the ideology of capitalism, uh, as you say, exerted a motive force on the uh, – progression of European and American politics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and when I think about that mode of force, I would be the first to admit that, you know, there's not, I, I don't have in my mind some, you know, very clear uh, mechanism uh, by which, you know, ideology is defined as X and ideology does Y. Um, but what I, what I have in mind is, I guess, a more, um, I guess, high level, um, conception of ideology as uh, an organizing in, uh, interest, or I should say an organizing um, element that serves to unify political interests into political action. Um, so the ideology of capitalism that I refer to in that chapter um, is basically a way of uniting two political interests, one being the sort of ancien regime landed aristocracy that depended on its uh, hereditary privilege for its wealth and power, um, and the other being the sort of new uh, upper middle class bourgeoisie of the 19th century that gained uh, wealth from, say, the industrialization of the economy. Um, and those two interests, I think, exerted a decisive influence over the course of politics in the 19th century. Um, and in order to unify those two interests, so you know, thinking about, say, the uh, French Revolution, which broadly speaking, you could think of as having put those two interests into opposition, um, what came out of the politics of the 19th century was a way of instead uniting them behind a political program. And that uh, political program was basically that the free market operates best when left to itself, and therefore uh, politics should not be used as uh, a, a way of overturning market outcomes. Um, and you could see why you know both of those interest groups, uh, the ancien regime aristocracy and the sort of new money upper middle class bourgeoisie would uh, adhere, we could could find something powerful to sustain themselves in that ideology, um, and so that chapter is about you know sort of putting out that basic idea, and then um, you know how did it play out in the context of mass enfranchisement in four different countries where um, the 
the supposed threat in, in uh, that was represented by political power being held by people regardless of um, their wealth or hereditary privilege um, was that they would overturn the economic hierarchy. Instead, this uh, ideology kind of united an, enough interest uh, use and, and used the um, anti-democratic levers of power um, in order to sustain itself you know, for decades after these countries had more or less mass enfranchisement. Yeah, I thought your argument in that in that piece was really convincing because it because it answers a distinct question, which is why if you have the material, if you have the mechanism by which the by which people can enforce their will against this uh, against this um, ideologically united class uh, that's invested in, in this kind of capitalism, why didn't why did it take so long for it to happen? I thought I thought your piece did a really good job of answering that question. My the thing that always occurs to me when we're talking about something as potentially powerful, but also as potentially nebulous and and kind of abstract as ideology is how does how does it function in practice when we ha- we talk about these ideas and we talk about them as really powerful and motive forces and we and we buy that that's the case how are how are they disseminated how do you basically through what mechanisms do you do you get people to buy into that yeah i i, I think that's a great question and i would be the first to admit that i don't have a definitive answer to it i think what it does is you know, create a belief system where, you know, I mean, I guess my basic view of politics is as being tribal in a, a broad sense. So once you're in the tribe of people who uh, adhere to an ideology, say the ideology of capitalism, that entails a number of um, subsidiary beliefs and uh, those beliefs, you know, get right down to uh, the um like the level of, uh, of policy preferences, you know, at, at, on pretty arcane matters. But essentially, you're saying, well, I'm a member of this of, of the tribe that believes this ideology, um, and then that motivates political action. Um, one thing I think it's important to get away from, though, which is in some degree in tension with what I just said, is you know, I don't think that political outcomes in any res- respect reflect the aggregation of preferences. So that's a sort of economicsy way of saying, you know. Things that happen in the world don't happen because a majority of the people want them to happen that way. Um, politics is much too complex for that. I mean, we have you know sort of negative, highly theoretical mathematical results in economics. This is what the arrow impossibility theorem refers to. Um, that say you know if you sort that that outcomes do not reflect any kind of democratic um, polling of people's. In individual preferences, um, and thus when you see see you know something like oh you know the United States didn't have an income tax until 1913, but you know people were extremely there were extremely rich people controlling you know a vast share of output 30 years prior to that. Um, you know you can't say oh well that was because you know the people didn't want an income tax until 1913 when they suddenly <laughs> did. <laughs> uh, um, and I think I mean that that idea you know I think that cuts a in different ways for a lot of different con- constituencies and a lot of different kind of political beliefs about our current um, uh, uh, status quo in this country because people do kind of, you know, I, I mean, I you, just as an example, I hear from or I've, I've heard, you know, throughout my my sojourn in the world of, of 
economics that you know the reason why the United States doesn't have as generous a welfare state as Western Europe is something about innate American um, individualism and we don't want to all be part of the same government health care plan or something like that. Pioneer um, character or something right, like that. Right. Right. And, you know, that's nonsense. I mean, the, uh, you know, I think it, I, I, you know, I've sort of always innately, innately felt in my uh, that that that's a pretty bad way of explaining outcomes. Um, but, all you know, I think more concretely, uh, you know, it was Eric Foner who for, her first sort of turned me tuned me into the argument that like, OK, well, you know, a very, very large chunk of the what would be the uh, enfranchised American working class was not enfranchised in America. That is to say, when Western Europe was setting up its welfare state, you know, the people who would have benefited in the American context just weren't allowed to vote. Um, and that is the way in which, you know, not only is the legacy of um, racial hierarchy and white supremacy obviously relevant to the history, to, to, to the African-American experience in this country, but it's also just relevant to the politics of this country you know, full stop that this is a, uh, an inescapable fact about our politics. Um, so that, and I, and that's intention with the idea that where I started is it's intention with the in, intention with the idea that politics reflects the aggregation of individual preferences. Um, and then I think you see that on the other hand, where, where, you know, people are saying, okay, well, why was Trump elected president, for example, um, the, you know, they want to say we have this simplistic debate. Is it because of, uh, uh, you know, economic race or class or, as, right, or race grievances? Right. I mean, you know, the election of Donald Trump as president is a political outcome that is as complex or, or not as, as any other political outcome. Um, but it, what it can't be explained by is aggregating the preferences of the majority of people. I mean, for one thing, we know straight yeah, up that he did not win the majority of the vote. But even, you know, beyond that, you just would not you, like trying to locate the explanation for uh, the election of Donald Trump in everybody's uh, in the aggregation of individual preferences is a fool's errand. I mean, on the other. So that that is where I think ideology bridges the gap between, you know, what do people want and see expressed in themselves it, or from themselves in politics versus what actually happens and how ideology bridges that gap, I think, is what remains to be explained. Yeah, because for me, I, I mean, thinking back, ideology is a word um, that has been used really frequently by people. You know, I, I went as I was thinking about talking to you, I went back and looked at E.P. Thompson's poverty of theory and some of the ways in which he tries to talk about ideology um, and there, you know, in a, in a kind of much older Marxist or Marxian reading, ideology was just the superstructure kind of produced by the material base, right? So there, there was a way in which ideology re just flowed from a set of material conditions. I think another way you might think of it is that that's maybe less schematic is to see ideology as something that flowed out of interest groups. So rather than it being something that kind of exists abstractly. It's just a consequence of the positions of certain sorts of interest groups within a social or economic structure. But I feel like that's not exactly where you were headed there. I feel like that's not exactly where you want it to be, that you want it to, to not just be something that kind of flows out of either kind of social position 
or economic structure or political structure, but you want it to have maybe a bit more of a life on its own. Is that is that right? Yes, I think I think that is absolutely right. I mean, I think the sort of clearest counterexample to a um, material conditions only story of where ideology comes from and its function is exactly the history of um, race and white supremacy in the United States. Um, you know, I think that there have, and you may well know better than I, I think there have been attempts to sort of reinterpret the history of uh, white supremacy in the United States through that lens. And they certainly will, I mean, they're, they're sort of guaranteed to at least claim some success because it's obviously very clear, as, as I think a lot of great historians are writing now, that the history of American capitalism um, is built upon uh, the history of white supremacy. But at the same time, you know, the, like the idea that uh, you know, racial hierarchy, for example, or, or what, what ideology does for you in politics is explain or help to explain where um, the idea that we should have a racial hierarchy and that that should be sustained um, might be able to I, I ex exert its presence on or and exert its influence over political outcomes over a long period of time. So I'm thinking here, like, you know, how was it the case that um, what was the sort of nascent threat of a populist uh, political movement in the South that had some um, uh, cross-race elements in the 1890s was kind of repurposed into the apotheosis of the Jim Crow system, what what some you know, historians have called like the nadir of the black experience of the post-war black experience in the in the South. Um, you know what was it about, or what, what I would say is like there's something about the ideology of white supremacy that allowed. Uh, that caused one moment of threat to the existing um, political system to be repurposed into something else. Uh, and uh, where, you know, for instance, the formal exclusion of uh, black people from the political system was finally achieved uh, by state constitutions that were passed in the, you know, some basically between 1895 or 1896 and 1920. Um, you know, those, those do not date to uh, Redemption was about overthrowing federal power in the South, but in terms of, you know, fir firmly and uh, uh, I guess resolutely excluding black people from all elements of, you know, the state and local power structure that did not arrive until the possibility that there would be a cross-race political coalition was uh, a more uh, potent and immediate threat. Um, so there's an ideology of white supremacy there that I don't, that, that, goes against the um, purely materialistic understanding from someone like Thompson. But on the other hand, what does that mean? You know, what's the positive interpretation of that? Or like what if, if, if ideology did that too, then what is it really? And I don't really have a good answer to that. Well, so I think at, at that point, this is where the weakness of, of, of ideology as arising purely out of material circumstances becomes clear, right? Because people aren't solely motivated by material circumstances. It's just, I think that seems to me that that's a – another species of the assume that people are rational actors type of type of fallacy yeah. that, you know, people do things for a lot of reasons. And sometimes people do things because they make them feel good and feeling like you're superior to another human being. When you game that out into the second and third and fourth order effects, you can end up with a whole system in which material concerns are part of that and you benefit materially from it without that necessarily being what motivates you at the start 
I guess. Yeah, although for someone like Thompson, the way that that manifested itself, the way in which it wasn't just material conditions, which got him the ire of quite a lot of uh, other Marxist historians when he was writing, was something that he called culture. Um, So for him, culture became this kind of critical force, but it wasn't ideology. And I think there have been a lot of historians who have been influenced by a kind of, or, or who used to be influenced by a kind of anthropological turn or anthropological theory and methods and wanted to see culture as this thing that enabled you to say, understand uh, the impact of white supremacy in the South. I think that critical race theorists have tried to see race as the kind of thing that would produce ideology. Um, But so in all these, you know, even if you don't go with the material one, if you were to say, go with, culture as an explanation if you were to look at something like race as an entity that produces or race or racism as a kind of entity that produces ideology you still have a sort of tethered ideology there um so again i'm i'm wondering about what the relationship between ideology as this kind of historical force as you're seeing it is and whether should we see ideology as something on par with things like race, material conditions, class, or, or that kind of can have a similar mode of effect, or is it sort, or is it something second order that maybe emerges out of a combination of those things? The way that I would characterize it, and I guess the way that it's sort of floating around in my own mind, is that what ideology is is a way of aggregating political interests into political action, mm-hmm. um, and in that respect, it sort of draws from the. Uh, uh, well of class and the well of race and the well of culture potentially um and create something out of it which is an act a, a uh um a system of organizing uh political beliefs that motivate certain political actions um so i don't know if that if that's you know second order or higher order i don't know where you know where we uh what direction we go um but i feel like it's it's not on the same level as race, class, or culture. Um, it's it's drawing from them and, I guess, creating something out of them. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think you have to see all those things as being in conversation with one another, right? Like, those are, mu- those are mutually interacting and reinforcing strands that can intersect in in the form of ideology, right? Like that that's, that it can be the thing that brings together all of those different concerns into a coherent package that gets people to do things. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, th- I think that's the critical point. The, the the latter point is gets people to do things. I mean, politic political outcomes do depend on political actions taken by you know individuals, interest groups, um, elected officials themselves. You know, who you name it. And so, what you need to do, what, what the, the function that ideology serves is to motivate political action. Great. Um, thanks a lot. I was thinking to maybe shift directions slightly uh, to ask you a bit about how you see ideology as something that shapes the way we do history. And so I I think a lot about the piece you wrote in Jacobin responding to Vox's uh, Zach Beauchamp and his arguments about social democracy, the presence of a welfare state, and the rise of fascism and far-right government in Europe. And so one of the arguments you made in there, I think, was quite clearly that his was an ideologically motivated history. And I think historians have debated a long time 
exactly you, how one goes about doing history well, whether or not that's compatible with declaring your ideology up front or whether we end up in a kind of view from nowhere. I think for the most part, historians are coming down on the side that there's no view from nowhere for us, that we're all in some way bound up in our sets of experiences, our beliefs and our values. Uh, at the same time, I don't think you have the same kind of firm declarative stances coming out of a lot of historians now that you did uh, in earlier periods. So I think that a lot of new left social historians or the British Marxists, they were very clear about where what their politics were. I think about feminist historians, and quite a lot of them were very clear that they were trying to do feminist history, that that was the point of it, um, and that that didn't diminish the history, but that it was something that informed it. I think now, and this has been sort of exacerbated by... Trump in some ways and his sort of uh, gratuitous disregard for anything approaching uh, truth. And I think some people have had this impulse to respond, no, there are facts, there are these things that exist in the world that we just know are true, uh, that they're that are not in any way constrained by ideology. So in some ways we have these sort of, there are these big questions about ideology, truth, and the practice of history. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just think a little bit about how you see ideology kind of shaping the historian's role or someone who wants to tell a story about the past. Yeah, so one thing that I personally admire a great deal among professional historians is exactly what you uh, referred to sort of at the beginning, which is to say the uh, conscious rejection of the idea that there's a view from nowhere. Um, and uh, my the, the reason why I value reading um, uh, academic history, not just for, for the subject matter, so to speak, but because there is actually um, an interpretation that itself gives life to the past. So, um, you know, when I'm thinking about the works of academic history that have profoundly influenced not just the way I view history, but the way that I think about what's going on now in the world, it is works that very consciously put forward an interpretation of the past, and then that interpretation and their use of evidence to, to sustain it appeal to me and, and, and convince me of their, uh, of their being correct. Um, so I'm thinking of, I mean, I, again, I'm going back to Foner and his history of reconstruction, um, and the sort of the marriage between what, um, uh, the, the redeemer interest in white supremacy within the South and the sort of Northern elite, uh, free market economics, um, uh, view in the popular press that had a you know some relation to social darwinism and the the unification of those two interests in when it came to overthrowing federal intervention in the south in the form of reconstruction um you know that that basic insight and interpretation i think um does a lot to explain what has happened in our politics uh just in, in the last 30 years or so but especially in the last single year um now i realize having read further beyond foner that you know to some degree he's getting that from other historians um and you know i recently read the book uh, the reconstruction of american liberalism by uh, nancy cohen which i think uh, puts a lot more meat on those bones and and is again you know highly um uh, resonant uh, um I do think, you know, I mean, I, I, again, sort of about my admiration for the contemporary historical profession, like my impression is, as you said, in the past, there was more, you know, 
of I'm a Marxist historian or I'm a feminist historian and therefore this is the history that I write. Um, and I and as you I think that this idea that you know certain points of view uh, denote certain uh, works of history, you know that is uh, is not uh, a current point of view either. And and to my to my mind, that's also a, a, you know reflects a healthy uh, discipline. I mean, you know, thinking about the uh, the book that noble dream about you know the the role of objectivity in history you know that sort of become or I think I think you know one message to take away from that book is that that itself became a sort of ideology of the history profession um, and you know having dealt with it head on or, or in part in dealing with it head on uh, academic historians are uh, better able to sort of wear it. Uh, honestly in undertaking new works of history uh, rather than sort of denying that it exists. And here, you know, I have heavily in my mind the contrast with uh, academic economics um, where, you know, the view that we're not uh, um, ideological and every other discipline is, is sort of, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, that's like you have to believe that if you want to be allowed into the seminar and it's just i mean given just you know it's just flat out wrong on its face and offensive that anybody would would believe that and and uh pass that around as you know a self-conscious uh, uh academic who in theory their job is to increase the amount of knowledge in the world and yet that is you know believing that and and putting that about um is itself destructive of knowledge um you know that to me is why i'm often to be found you know thinking that the historians have a much better and healthier and more useful uh, body of work to understanding the world than uh, at least a lot of what exists in economics. Well, you, you raise some really, really interesting points there. And there's some, uh, like, I think that part of the, part of the disconnect is when historians write for other historians, I think we're very comfortable putting our ideological leanings out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and at least if not in, the answers that we get in the questions that we ask and the way that we ask them. I think that's the, I think that's the clearest way in which ideology influences the way that historians go about doing, doing their jobs. Yeah. And it's not Uh, that hard to figure out. I mean, every now and again, you get tricked, but it it is quite often you, by by looking at the questions people ask, you can get a sense of what they're hoping to, to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's one of those areas, and I think this is where there's actually a lot of overlap with with what you're talking about in economics. The the like the studied idea that this is that there's no ideology there, like <laughs> that what that where there's overlap is I think in public view. I think yeah. that most public readers of history, not academic readers, but public readers of it, <clears throat> and I know I've experienced this in doing history for popular audiences. <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Um, that public audiences are very uncomfortable with the idea that there is a that there can be ideological views of history they that uh, the listening and reading public or at least a substantial and vocal chunk of it wants there to be one story now there of course in presenting that one story that they're comfortable with there's an ideology there like, yes a, yes there's, exactly yeah. like because the audience that i'm talking about here tends to be overwhelmingly white male suburban and older and they and those people whether they realize it or not they want a history that speaks to them in terms with which they're comfortable and any story other than that one they assume to be ideologically motivated 
And so there's a disconnect there. But like, but it comes back to the same thing that like for them, for that particular audience that doesn't want its quote unquote ideological history, like they don't realize that there's an ideology to, to what they want. They don't realize that it's just the default state of being and everything else is a deviation from that, which I think says a whole heck of a lot about that particular situation. <laughs> and the way in right. which certain ideologies are capable of normalizing themselves and naturalizing themselves. I mean, to some degree, an ideology that works really well is one that allows you to believe that there's no ideology. It's neoliberalism. Yeah. Yep. Yes, know. yes, like, <laughs> exactly. Yes, this is the, the, the uh, you know, the proverbial fish that doesn't know it's wet or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's exactly it. I mean, but so the, this was you raised something there that I wanted to, to come back to. And that's the perception, I think, especially among the public, that economics and economists is that an economist are not motivated by ideological concerns. And you've got some thoughts on that. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, so just sort of two big, huge things there. Um, you know, I think that, uh, Economics has done a fantastic job of speaking to more or less exactly the audience you just named in terms of saying no, 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 to reassuring them that, you know, their the, the story they want told is the natural and correct story and anything that challenges that is an ideologically motivated um uh, theory of the world that can be ignored for being biased. Um, and, you know, as you say, the most successful ideology is the one that naturalizes itself. You know, this would be the basic race critique of, uh, you know, the, you would call like, you know, the American ideology or something that, that, uh, you know, anything that's not the, um, elite white male, uh, is, is somehow other and, uh, you know, outside the mainstream and the history that validates the current state of and, and historical state of the white male uh, is is the one story that is, you know, free of any bias. Um, so, you know, I think that that's crucial. I mean, the other element of of this is that ideology itself is sort of a bad word. And that is why I have, you know, tried to, I mean, I put the word ideology in the title of that book chapter and, you know, that's one tiny action among, you know, what I hope is a way of saying, no, you know, having an interpretation about how the world works is the only way to honestly interact with, uh, with the world and to deny that you have one is, uh, to itself is, is to obscure the truth. Um, and I think this gets exactly to the distinctions between, um, you know, kind of the practice of economics by economists and the practice of history by historians, um, that ec economists really do not have a healthy, uh, view of their own practice of the discipline. I mean, that for one thing, um, theories about how the world works are, you know, called models and they're written down in math and they sort of take on this like <laughs> we've gone to a lot of economic talks uh, in the past yeah. economics and economic history talks in the past few years and yeah the yep. regression things are always my my favorite part and the modeling part of everyone is always my favorite <laughs> yeah and i mean i, I you know it, it gets a lot worse from there is what i would tell you in that you know the economic historians especially the, the ones that are working now i mean they definitely definitely have their ideological blinders but by comparison to other subfields and economics, they are, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of uh, proper uh, interpretation of, of data and 
inference to the rest of reality. Um, you know, I have I have great admiration for some of the work that's being done now, um, even though I think it uh, it suffers a great deal exactly from this problem. They you know they often believe themselves to have the uh, the the non-ideological take and to be in battle with the compromised historians. I mean, I'm just thinking about the uh, conflict between um, Ed Baptist and some of the other historians of capitalism, um, you know, versus the economic historians and the terms in which that bitter fight has taken place. You know, the economists basically say um, uh, that they're free of ideology, that, uh, that Baptist has an agenda. Um, and on my reading of it, um, you know, it just, that couldn't that that isn't the case at all. I mean, it's the economists who are motivated by the need to show that capitalism is somehow good. That you know that that it's not. It doesn't necessarily need to be all good, but uh, the idea that the industrial revolution, which created a great deal of wealth, is built upon the uh, torture of of slaves and the capitalization of their humanity into you know other people's property. Um, that. That's like if that's true, then the great myth that sustains the uh, modern or neoclassical economics uh, kind of falls away, and thus we can't allow that to be true. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm recalling a whole bunch of debates that uh, historians of the Roman economy have had in recent years about the market versus the state, and mm. uh, I'm recalling one particularly uh, free market oriented uh, economist who wrote on this who was just like, well, we're going to exclude slaves from our analysis and talk about the Roman labor market. And I'm like, man, but that's like, that's like a third of, that's like a third of yeah. all the labor that's being done. Like that, that seems right. like a fairly, that seems like a fairly not supportable kind of thing that you're doing here. Right. And, and so, you know, first of all, the whole idea that there's a distinction between the state and the market. And like, we could have a coherent debate where, you know, one side is saying, well, the state is a decisive influence. And the other side is saying that the yes. market is oh a decisive influence. Thank you. I mean, Thank you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just, you know, totally ridiculous. I mean, in that, in that sense, all this discussion is like directly uh, related to my work at the Roosevelt Institute, what I actually do for a living, um, which is to say, you know, that the economy that we live in is structured by the rules and power relations and decisions that have been made to structure it that way. And there is no robust state market distinction. Um, and it's maddening to even pretend that there would be, um, I think. And then, you know, the other you know, piece, uh, or I guess more specific piece, like in, in the debate that you're just referring to, you know, the, the economists that are, that are in the room are trying to find a little plot of ground around which they can erect a fence and say, you know, what goes on on this plot of ground, this is right, this is good. Um, and this is, you know, the market, this is, uh, uh, you know, the economy functioning as it's supposed to function. Um, and that serves everyone that's egal that's naturally egalitarian, that is innovative, whatever, you know, fancy words you want to apply to it. Um, and, you know, all of the other terrible things about the past and human suffering and unjust systems of, uh, of laws and of power, you know, that can somehow be uh, abstracted from or kept out of the story. And we have this nice one little fable that we can then kind of march or we can pick up and like march into the temple and, and uh, all worship. Um, and, you know, that is, again, you know, that there's nothing more ideological than that. And that is really, really not a good way of understanding history and will lead you astray 100% of the time. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm recalling a, a heated discussion I got into in the comments on one of uh, the articles for my podcast on Deadspin about the Roman about the Roman market economy. And just like this is, and I, I recall all of this, this entire discussion playing out in exactly the terms that you're describing here in the comment section of a sports website. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and, and this this shows how powerful ideology is, because like mm-hmm. so Rando's commenting on the Internet on, you know, in that comment section, it's like, you know, they have in their mind a theory about how the world works and how it should work. And something that you said activated that and got mm-hmm. them to write down a bunch of angry comments. You know, that's hardly the most consequential political action of all time. But it does. It is one tiny little piece of evidence about the motive force of ideology in uh, creating action and you know, writing Internet comments isn't the most effective political action. But it. It is an a political action. I don't but think it, it makes exactly sense. something yeah. caused you to slam that caps lock down. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. And that, but that's like yeah. you know, Keith. Keith and I had a very thoughtful listener who sent us links to the complete works of the uh, of the uh, Mises uh, Institute. Uh, yeah. Which, well, I, just, you know, I actually really appreciated. Yeah, which which was very nice. Which was very nice to have. But kind of the underlying assumption was that we couldn't have known about this and to have the view to have the views that we have. You know, yeah, and it's right, like right, right. Well, it's a sort of like yes, unveiling revelation. I mean, I I can't plead total uh, uh, innocence when it comes to you know spreading the view that oh, once somebody is. Uh, uh, exposed to the truth and the correct interpretation, they will then automatically believe, you know, because of its self-evident worth, um, you know, I have may, may or may not have uh, made comments to that effect about my own work. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but it does, it, you know, it certainly tells you a lot about where the person's coming from in their view of whoever they're talking to. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like, I think that hits on exactly the importance of the whole thing. Like if you're, if if you're in a situation where your motivating factors are buried so deeply in who you are that it can get you to they can get you to write comments on the internet and send emails to people and believe strongly that if like in a kind of a messianic sense that like if only people knew the truth they'd believe like i think that i but i you you've sold me on you've sold me on ideology here um, <laughs> yeah you have you have actually sold me i guess one last question i wanted to get to maybe as we're wrapping up is we've talked a lot about kind of the ideology of economics and of the practice of economics. But one of the things I really hope that you could talk about a bit as an outsider to the historical profession is whether or not history practice carries with it ideology. And and for me, kind of the specific thing that made me want to ask you this was the review you wrote of Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, and one of your critiques was that she kind of held back on on calling Buchanan a racist. And this is something that she has spoken about publicly in the Who Makes Sense podcast and, and said, you know, I'm consistently accused of calling him this, but nowhere in the book will you see me call him that. And I was very careful to try to keep that division there. And for her, that, as she spoke about this to in the context of kind of speaking about history, that was meant as a sort of recommendation for what was for what was methodologically rigorous and good about the book. For you, that was a point of critique. So I'm wondering if you see something in how historians do our work that to you kind of carries with it ideology. Yeah, I mean, I that is a great question. And I would 
be the first to admit that I don't have a comprehensive answer to it uh, right now. Um, I do. Th- I mean, maybe we can sort of like walk through the whole <laughs> McLean debate. I mean, maybe that's not a good idea, actually, given that maybe people might not want to uh, go through that all again. Um, you know what I so she's say, you know, the the uh, the critique of her coming from uh, Buchanan's followers and that whole uh, clique is um, that she makes unfounded accusations against uh, James Buchanan as being personally a racist and a white supremacist and coming up with a bunch of whole theories to justify the continuing uh, uh, domination of uh, white people over the South um, or the country as a whole. Um, And she doesn't accuse him of that. She is absolutely right that she uh, doesn't go into what are the individual motivations of uh, James Buchanan. Um, So she's right to defend herself in those terms. And um, I agree that, so you sort of characterize me as critiquing uh, McLean's ideology or refusal to do that. Um, And I don't critique that. I think she was right not to go there because I think there's a limited amount that we can uh, ascertain about an individual's motives. But more importantly, they they just don't matter as much as the ideology of the whole movement that he was a part of. Um, and that where my, my critique of uh, of her and her unwillingness to use the R word, so to speak, um, is that I really do think there is a, a taint of racism that applies to uh, the broad uh, uh, neoclassical revolution in economics, you might speak, you might say. And I would be criticized for that in a second by historians of that movement uh, for painting it with a much too broad a brush. So I will, you know, pair it. I mean, for one thing, most economists and historians of economics would say that the man that I, I previously cited favorably, Ken Arrow, was like the father of that that revolution, or at least one of them. And I don't, I mean, by no stretch of the imagination was he a racist, racist himself, or more importantly, was he motivated by racism or a backlash to the civil rights movement or anything like that, the sorts of terms that I deployed in the review um, of McLean's book. Um, Elements of it, though, that extend way beyond Buchanan, who was basically a fringe figure in his own lifetime and more or less irrelevant to the current practice of economics now. Um, But elements of that, the R word, the racism, definitely extend beyond him well into the more accepted parts of the discipline. So this is – I'm thinking of um, works in like the human capital tradition, the so-called, about why are uh, some people rich and some people poor in the labor market? That's due to their own – uh, capacity for for skilled labor um, and not due to uh, historical discrimination or um, uh, uh, structural power of employers over their employees and how that is used especially to the disadvantage of, of uh, minority communities I mean there's uh, you know there's a whole debate basically about whether discrimination exists this is um, even ongoing in the current day, where you know you sort of the economist kind of wheels into this room a large baggage train, you know, full of things that supposedly aren't discrimination, and then says, well, if you control for every single item in this baggage train, um, there's no discrimination left. And the whole assumption that all of these things aren't discrimination, and the way you would detect it is if there was some residual. Uh, 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 effect of say race after you've controlled for like 20 different things it's completely arbitrary what's on that list um you know that that whole mode of analysis is something that uh, very much persists into the into the current day and i 
am uh, you know my view of the intellectual history of it is that it stems directly from a backlash to the civil rights movement um so that's where i would you know kind of sharpen the critique of economics I, you know my I think that a flaw in McLean's book is that she focuses too much on the guy whose ac- whose archive she had access to, which t- to some degree is a uh, understandable flaw of the book, and overinterprets him as being a central figure and reflective of the entire discipline. Um, and I think you know a more damning critique of the whole edifice is one that recognizes you know this guy is just one part of it, perhaps like on the you know m- on on one. Uh, uh, fringe of it on one flank, um, but he was part of a much larger uh, uh, movement that wasn't a conspiracy theory or a clique. It was a, a, a um, you know, academic discipline and an ac- and a, um, intellectual evolution of that discipline in a certain direction. And that entire thing uh, is uh, in, is sourced in uh, a backlash to the civil rights movement. I don't seem a whole lot to argue with in that. I think that I, I think that all makes a lot of sense. Um, well, so kind of on that note, Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can the people find you? Uh, well, I'm I tweet at econ underscore Marshall. Um, that's probably the place where I'm most prolific. But I, I tend to write. I mean, both uh, for the Roosevelt Institute in Boston Review and Jacobin, um, and. Uh, I look forward to hearing from people. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure (laughs) for us too. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks very much. Thank you.